0: My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What the Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, and investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome, What the Finances, to another episode of the What the Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what has happened in the world of finance, investing, and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Marco Papic, who's Partner and Chief Strategist at Clocktower Group, as well as author of the book, Geopolitical... Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future, which I really enjoyed. So Marco, thanks for joining the podcast today.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on,
0: Anthony. No problem. So my first question, um, I'm, I'm assuming that you've talked to lots of people about <laughs> geopolitics and what's happening in the world. So what are the biggest misconceptions that you see people have
1: um, in terms of the markets?
0: Yeah. Or just ge- geopolitics in general, I guess, maybe also the impact that geopolitics have on markets.
1: I think the biggest misconception, there's probably three of them. First of all, that geopolitics is somehow different from investing. And what I mean by that is like that, um, you know, gaining insights into what's going on on the geopolitical front is different from your day to day job. Uh, we as investors, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about frameworks, uh, fundamentals. We try to build net assessments off of which to trade, off of which to invest. And then when it comes to geopolitics, we're like, Bring me some 80-year-old dude who used to work in as undersecretary of state for Eurasian affairs, and he will tell me everything I need to know, and that's awesome. It's crazy. You know, it's really, really interesting how we lose our damn mind when it comes to geopolitical research. And the truth is that it's the same thing. You need to have a framework. You need to do the research. You need to do the hard work. And then you have a net assessment. Now, is it going to be 100% uh, correct? Of course not. Uh, so that's the second misconception, which is that geopolitics cannot be predicted. That's true. You cannot predict anything with high level of certainty. Uh, you also can't predict earnings of companies with high level of certainty or the directionality of uh, asset price moves using chart analysis and technicals. I mean, you can have a good handle on it. You can improve your knowledge. And that's what an analytical framework you know, that I've been uh, talking about on geopolitics can help you do. It helps you direct into a, you know, less wrong forecast. Um, And then the third misconception is probably that, um, you know, geopolitical events um, are something that you need to focus on, on a more shorter term basis. Um, I mean, it's funny because I wrote a whole book about that, you know, so uh, shameless plug, uh, the book Geopolitical Alpha is about generating alpha off of geopolitical events. Uh, But the truth is like, that's not really what geopolitical analysis is about. Geopolitical analysis is more about geopolitical beta. It's about understanding the long-term trends that are going to move markets and are going to impact macroeconomics, uh, but they're much more longer term. So for example, I would say that far more important than the Ukrainian war or what's going on in China with zero COVID, which are all kind of political events, far more important is this trend where the median voters in the West have moved to the left on the left-right economic spectrum, not on social issues, you know, I'm talking about economics. That's really relevant because it explains why we overstimulated during COVID and why it's going to be very difficult to implement austerity uh, over the next several months, you know, and I think that that's an interesting uh, trend. It's, It's something that has investment relevance, but isn't necessarily a sexy news item that you get on the front page.
0: Yeah. And that was a really interesting point that you mentioned throughout the book, that median voter and the importance that they have in terms of who, who's elected and I guess the direction of economy. So why is it so important to understand the median voter and I guess what influence do they have?
1: You know, um, policymakers and politicians, they react to material constraints. And so this is the whole framework that I've Uh, you know, really been emphasizing. And it's not just my framework. It's a framework used by intelligence agencies, by political risk consultancies. I modified it a little bit for investors. And so policymakers react to constraints. So what are some of the constraints? Well, you know, if you're running a country like, um, you know, Peru, long-dated bond yields are probably a constraint. You don't want to anchor the bond market if you are not printing a reserve currency. As an example, but the ultimate constraint in democracies, and I would argue in authoritarian, softer authoritarian regimes as well, is the median voter. And the median voter is obviously uh, a philosophical concept. They don't exist. But it's this idea that um, there, is, there are important issues of the day. We're not talking like something that's a side issue. But important issues of the day, the median voter has a view. And you don't want to be offside of that median voter on their view. Um, and so politicians are going to approximate the, the policy preferences of the median voter because it's a constraint to a policymaker. If you're offside the median voter, an opposition party will elbow you out on the, on the curve of distribution of preferences and they'll get closer to the median voter and win the election. A good example of this, you know, is uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, bill, uh, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton uh, handily with voters making sixty to $100,000 a year in 2016. In 2020, right before the election, he took bad advice from Senator Mitch McConnell and did not stimulate with the third check right ahead of the election. And that $60,000 to $100,000 voter, a very important, pivotal American middle-class voter, overwhelmingly swung from Donald Trump in 2016 to Joe Biden in 2020. So Democrats recaptured kind of the lower middle class voter. Um, And that's a good example where, you know, Donald Trump misjudged just how committed the median voter was during the pandemic to basically redistribution, a very non-American type of a stimulus. Um, And I think that that cost him the election. But that's that's an example of where being offside of median voter can be immediately uh, a problem.
0: And do you think central banks have that sort of constraints as well in terms of the median votes, or do you feel like they've got that, yeah? Difference?
1: Great question, Anthony, because that's going to be a huge issue. I mean, you're actually, that's an incredible question, because that question is going to be the question of 2023, my friend. You know? Um, I Look, like, you nailed it. And here's why. Everyone's backing off right now. Everyone's cool. CPI is, CPI is going to come. The way I say it is this. Look, the Fed could take a vacation. Okay, close up shop. We're at four or five percent CPI in six months. We all know this. CPI is blah blah blah. I can show you 60 charts. All right, cool. But what happens when we get to four percent? What happens in Q3, Q4 of 2023? When we go to we get to 4% CPI and we stay there. And we stay there. And we stay there. That's when the central banks are going to have to say, okay. Getting from 10 to 4 was actually kind of easy, you know, and it didn't incur a lot of pain on the median voter. And the inflation versus recession cost-benefit calculus actually favored cutting down inflation. There was fear of recession. Elizabeth Warren wrote a letter to Jay Powell like, hey, man, you know, watch out. But for the most part, Twitter, hashtag inflation was trending higher than hashtag recession. Now you get to four percent, okay? Now what happens? Well, first of all, a normal human being cannot discern the difference between two and four percent inflation. Let's just be for, like real here. Second, at ten percent CPI, your real wages are what minus five percent. At four percent CPI, your real wages are flat, if not positive. So who the hell is asking the central bank to go for four to two percent? Who is that human being? Some professor of. Economics at Yale, some PhD in economics waving. They're shaking their little fist at the perniciousness of a four percent CPI over the course of the rest of this decade. Nobody, nobody, nobody's gonna have a problem with four percent CPI. Not the corporates who can pass on price increases. Not the consumers who are making enough money to swallow it. And definitely not the politicians who are looking at a sovereign debt hoard and saying, like, man, four percent for a couple of years looks like a good idea. And that's where the median voter does matter i think the central bank would basically be committing uh the sin of monitor jihad if they went from four to two percent you know what i mean this is like unnecessary um hawkishness and i think that you will see q3 q4 next year the median voter have an impact on the central bank uh where i, I don't think they're gonna have the guts to go from four to two percent because it's just like there's nobody's asking for that And that's actually the biggest probably macro story of next year. Like, I don't want to put any trades on right now based on that view. But it's clear that if that happens, if the bond market has to realize that effectively, not de jure but de facto, we have a new inflation target, you know, bonds got to sell off again.
0: And I guess once people realize that, does that have an impact on, you know, inflation and thoughts of, you know, what could happen within a year? You know, when the target goes forward, does it then go up higher? I guess that's a challenge to, to look at.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think you know, if if the tar- if if we're stuck at four for a long time, I think the central bank will be comfortable that they don't need to really. There's no urgency in in bringing it down lower.
0: Yeah so I guess if we take a step back and go back to your framework uh there was a quote that I took from the book which I think really explains it quite well it was uh preferences are optional and subject to constraints whereas constraints are neither optional nor subject to preferences uh which I think explains it really well so yeah from so let's say Italy the new Italian president comes into power she's i guess you could say pro russia maybe anti euro there's these Uh, preferences that she might have, and there's constraints as well. So can you maybe explain, like, I guess, the difference and then how you can understand which are which?
1: Well, I think uh, preferences are, you know, stated goals of policymakers. Preferences would be ideological leanings. Preferences are everything that, you know, um, well-connected consultants whisper to you in a meeting by name-dropping, you know. Uh, here's what Vladimir Putin wants. You know, here's what Joe Biden administration is going to do. Um, Preferences are basically the stated goals or the unstated goals. It's everything that resides in a policymaker's head. And the problem with preferences is not that they're not um, actionable. You know, it's that you don't know what's in somebody's head. And the other issue is that preferences um, can change. You know, they can change and they're impacted by the material reality around you so my preference is to drive around in a bentley coupe gt baby blue color you know with like orange rims just don't judge me that's what i want but you know and you if if somebody asks you like hey anthony can marco buy a bentley coupe gt you would be like okay well you wouldn't ask like well does he want one you know you'd be like okay well uh, can i see his bank account can i see his monthly earnings can I talk to his wife? You know, like, does he have kids? Where does he live? Those are all the things, like, that you would want to know. And similarly, I think what's interesting, this goes back to my first point when you were like, what are misconceptions about geopolitics? And, and my argument was, we think that somehow you can have these uh, magical fairies come to your office and tell you what, you know, Joe Biden wants to do. Who cares? Who cares what Joe Biden or Putin or Zelensky wants to do? What we want to know is what are the material constraints around it. Now, again, if you could plug some special device into a policymakers head, I'd say, go ahead, spend the money on that device, on that device, get the preferences down. Let's let's know them. That would be awesome. I'm just saying we in, in finance, we don't have time for that. We don't have money for that. We don't have we need to start with something and far more diagnostic than preferences are the material constraints. Uh, And that's, you know, a good example of this would be Ukraine. I mean, I'm probably jumping a little bit here, but just I want to say, like, Ukraine is a great example. I keep getting these questions from clients. What does Zelensky want to do? When is he willing to negotiate? Is Putin willing to negotiate? And I say, like, who cares, guys? Who cares? I don't, I don't, who cares what President Zelensky or President Putin wants? I can tell you right now, their militaries both suck at offense. They're not doing that well. And so we're reaching a military equilibrium. And once the military equilibrium is reached, once you have stasis in a war, political equilibrium will follow. Or you won't. There was never a political equilibrium in the Korean War. The thing's been over for 70 years. you know. And that's a great example of how you shouldn't be anchoring to policymaker preferences. You should be anchoring to the, the material world that constrains them and forces them down the political path of least resistance.
0: Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. So, you know, you mentioned before and we've talked about the median votes and how that's like a big constraint, especially with uh, recent elections that we've seen where, let's be honest, a lot of the, you know, it's happened in Australia, it happens in France, it happens in um, the US as well, where left-leaning parties did quite well. Uh, Are there any other constraints that you think uh, maybe people aren't paying enough attention to at the moment, maybe just on a broader scale?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I think China, China has multiple constraints. I think China has peaked as a global power, it's not a bearish view, it's certainly not a bullish view, is just a statement that I think that China is in a period of digestion, is digesting the growth of the last two decades and the negative externalities of that growth, whether that's income inequality, which uh, the Communist Party has stated it wants to resolve, whether it's a massive amount of private sector leverage, which means that the domestic growth engine in China is going to take a vacation for the next seven to ten years. You know, so China is in a period of digestion, and during this period, it's going to depend on external demand for its growth. And I don't see a country that's, you know, addicted to external demand committing aggressive geopolitical acts. So that's one that I think I think most people, when they talk about constraints in China, they, they look at it militarily, like can China effectively reunite with Taiwan militarily? Like, Can that happen? And then we do this order of battle analysis, which, by the way, is also a good thing to do, because I, I think that would also lead to a conclusion that China's constrained. Uh, but I think that we miss the economic side of this, the macroeconomic side, the fact that China is you know, really, growth in China over the last three years has been export-driven. And they're not going to be able to boost consumption. So the only way to offset that is to increase the investment side of the GDP, which will eventually lead to a current account deficit, which will then also make China not just addicted to exports, but also import of capital. Like this is not a profile of a country that goes to war, you know, uh, for something that's optional. And this is important Taiwan is optional, it's not critical. Um, the other constraint, I think, um, is Iran. You know, I would say that, but in this case, um, Iran is not constrained, necessarily, as much as it's desperate. Its policymakers have been put in a corner. It's a wounded animal. It's been waiting for negotiations for 10 years with the U.S. Um, you know, Europeans and everyone else in the world has told them, just be patient. Donald Trump will lose. He lost. Joe Biden comes in. Just be patient. You know, here's a the deal. Uh, they themselves made, made a couple of mistakes. They were um, a little bit too aggressive in their negotiations. They could have concluded a deal 12 months ago. They missed that window, and then inflation came, Biden had to go to Saudi Arabia, and then you have this revolution in Iran, which is really problematic because it's a revolution led by gender equality. And it pretty much nailed the final coffin, uh, the final nail in the coffin of negotiations because you cannot be a liberal progressive president of the United States of America and then negotiate with a country that's you know, subjugating women. That's just not going to happen. And so I think policymakers in Iran are realizing that the negotiation path is over. And so they have to increase the cost of noncompliance to the West. And, uh, I think over the next 12 months, this will replace China and Ukraine on the front pages of a newspaper.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I think, you know, one thing that's mentioned in the book about constraints, you talk about Putin and obviously how you say it's quite unlikely that he would invade Ukraine because of constraints. But then we've seen that that's just because there's constraints there doesn't mean that people will go against them and try and do it. And now I think you could say, uh, you know, Iran as well as China have sort of seen the consequences and they may be second guessing what they were, you know, previous thoughts they had.
1: I think it's a little bit different, you know, for China. I think for China, maybe. Uh, I don't think China was like planning to be very aggressive. In fact, um, if you look at Chinese operations in the South China Sea, they've actually become less aggressive when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to um, being aggressive towards their neighbors in the South China Sea, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia. Like when was the last time you heard about Chinese Navy harassing like Philippines fishermen? That's more of a 2016 thing. Now, with the Senkaku Islands, with Japan, there was a, there was a couple of incidents this year, which uh, actually my Japanese clients reminded me of. Um, but for the most part, it still hasn't reached the level of 2011, 2014, 15 level of tensions. So when it comes to it, like Chinese assertiveness, they've already reacted to the constraints, I think. And so I think the probability of the Taiwan intervention was very low anyways. I think it's collapsed, perhaps, to your point, since Ukraine. On Iran, you know, like, Iran has tools that it can use that Russia didn't, you know. The biggest mistake Russians made, and there were so many mistakes Russians made, but the biggest one is they thought that somebody in Ukraine still liked it, you know. And you we have polling data that shows that Russian-speaking Ukrainians, who were ambivalent about their nationality, they were, everybody east of Dnieper, basically, Um, decided after 2014 and 15 that Russia is not, like in any way, um, their fatherland or motherland. And so when the Russians reinvaded in 2022, they found that 90 to 95% of the domestic population was extremely hostile to them. Um, In Iran's case, that's not the case with neighboring Iraq. And I'm not saying that Iran would invade Iraq, but... You know, I I can see why Iranian policymakers, now that they're cornered, now that they have no prospects for negotiations, they might use destabilization of Iraq through their Shia militant proxies in the country to, again, increase the cost to the West of non-negotiations. And to be very specific, what I mean by that is increase the price of oil, (laughs) you know, uh, throwing off all these market head forecasts of 4% CPI that are so certain that I was talking about earlier. You know and that's that's you know like that's the only thing they have right now, I think in their in their arsenal they could also directly attack Saudi installations as they have done in the past, but there's no plausible deniability in that I think that would be less wise than than causing chaos in Iraq again I'm, I don't have high certainty of this and I certainly cannot time it, but I would say that in Iraq's Iran's case um, they're so desperate that the the whatever lessons they may have learned from Ukraine. Are not necessarily um, going to be applied.
0: Yeah, definitely. As you said, if they're in the corner, they might not have, have the option. So, let's say you come up with these, you know, constraints. You put your framework together. From there, how would you sort of, I guess, analyze when the time to invest would be, or what, like, I guess, what asset you choose to stay take that position as well, from your perspective?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like macro assets are what I what I do. I don't do anything like um, like I don't do names. I don't do equities. I do sectoral. Like plays sometimes, but it really depends on the issue. I like currencies, commodities, um, sectors, relative sectors, European defense versus US defense, things like that. But what I would say is, um, first of all, when it comes to generating geopolitical alpha, when it comes to generating alpha, it's much easier to generate it when the risk premium is in the market. So I tend to actually surprise people by being the geopolitical guy who doesn't think the world is ending well like i would say 80 to 90% of my trade ideas are when i walk into an office of an investor and say like uh yeah you're trading something that's on the cover of the economist good luck and most of the time what i mean by that is that when the risk premium is in the market i either agree with it and then i'm not going to talk about it because whatever it's consensus it's in the price or i'm going to bet against it i'm going to bet that there's an informational disadvantage that the median investor has because They don't understand geopolitics. And because they're reading newspapers for their understanding, they have probably been alarmed by something that will dissipate. So I like to harvest alpha as geopolitical risk premium is drained from the markets. And in my view, the half-life of the geopolitical risk premium is much shorter than people think. Um, So the good example of this is this year's oil. This year, oil prices, I was very vociferous that oil prices should come down. Uh, I got killed on financial Twitter uh, by every oil analyst because they tend to be bullish. uh, And they tend to look at inventories, which is like, you know, my chocolate Labrador can look at inventories. Uh, They seem to forget that there's the other side of the coin, which is demand. And uh, in this case, the fundamentals were telling you Chinese demand was weak. Oil prices should be lower, but the risk premium was there out of the Ukraine conflict and the perceived importance of the EU oil embargo, which in my view was a PR exercise by uh, the West. And so that's a good example of harvesting something like a risk premium that's come out. Now, the issue with Iran is interesting. So I'm telling you, like, look, over the next 12 months, I think there could be a serious conflict in the Middle East. And you're like, oh, my gosh, should we go long oil? I tend to not like to do that because that's where timing is an issue. You see, when the risk premium is already in the markets, you don't have a timing issue. When the geopolitical risk premium has been applied to an oil price, something has already happened, i.e. the Ukraine war. And then you can apply your constraint framework and say like, okay, well, this thing is like blown out way too much. I'm going to harvest it as it comes down. The problem with like having a view of a risk that's coming and expecting risk premium to come in is that you can wait for a long time. So Iran could do something tomorrow. Or it could do something 12 months from now, and you're sitting there for 12 months waiting for it to happen, losing money.
0: Yeah, I guess the challenge is there's so many other things that could impact that as well. So it might not sure. just be the Middle East, there might be other factors. Of lot.
1: course. Exactly, exactly. And, and like you're betting on something coming that isn't there. I, I I like to bet against the geopolitical risk premium most of the time. Now, it doesn't mean I'm always bullish. That's not what my analysis, it's not like I have an analytical bias towards bullishness. I just have a trading bias towards bullishness because, because it's much easier than just waiting you know, in the options market for something to blow up. Uh, by the way, I apologize if uh, you can hear some buzzing in the back, but the building is under reconstruction. We have an office in a over 100-year-old building right on the beach in Santa Monica. And so it's like um, they have to... Reconstructed because concrete is falling off of it and uh, threatening pedestrians. So just as a little explanation,
0: <laughs> that's pretty messy. Yeah, I think I think we're okay. I don't think you can hear it, so that's a that's a good thing. Um, so I guess lo- looking at that perspective, then you've probably thought that Russia has been given too much credit in terms of its military threat that it would have on, I guess, Europe as well, and maybe the spending from there. And then as well, I think you've talked about China and I guess the bearishness in China, and maybe you think that's gone a bit too far as well.
1: No, I think China is going to be the best performer in 2023, in my view. I've been on record since November. Stocks have ripped. Um, My team in Shanghai has called zero COVID perfectly. I think we broke the story. It's at Shanghai Macro, if you want to follow on Twitter, at Shanghai Macro. Um, So the office there knows what is happening. Um, And not because we talk to people, by the way, to go back to the thing, you know, like no, it's because we have a framework, and because we predicted three months ago, the Chinese policymakers were kind of running out of rope on the zero COVID policy for a number of reasons, not because of like protests or because people were angry, although, yes, that's too. Um, so I think China is going to have a great year, uh, and I think that it's an alpha-generating opportunity. It doesn't mean that I think China, in the long term, is a great investment opportunity. I think there's still a massive amount of uncertainty. And so uh, I just think that there's going to be a pop in 2023, and there already is like imminent pop. It's happening, so you know it can go on for a little bit longer. The other reason that China can do very well is because I had th- I think we're in the pocket where the ten year is going to behave. So the ten year has already rallied as we expected. We've been long duration since October. The ten year yield has come down, which gives Nasdaq and ADRs in China, you know, a nice lift. So it's not just zero COVID. It's not the fact that Chinese premier is pro-business, pro-growth guy from Shanghai. All those things are important, but there's also a macro story that should lift TMT sector in China, um, which obviously dominates their sector, just like in the US. Um, I think the more interesting one is probably what's going to happen with commodities. I think that's the big story. Um, I've been very bearish commodities this year, which is interesting because a lot of my you know, friends and clients were angry at me. They were like, but Marco, you believe in the secular commodity bull story. You've been writing research since 2020 about the commodity super cycle. And it's like, okay, I, like, but nothing goes in a straight line. There can be interregnums. And this year, we had a significant interregnum in the energy and commodity markets. And that's because of what happened in China. Um, and so that interregnum, I think, is over. Uh, and so I think that oil prices, uh, but also metals, should do well in 2023. Now, the timing is really difficult. I mean, I'm surprised by the sell-off in oil. So I was bearish oil from 120 to 85. Now that it hit like 80, I'm like, wow, that's, you know, I would I would have not made the money from 87, 85 to 80. Um, and now I'm a little bit confused what's going on. I'm willing to sit on the sidelines, see where we go. Maybe there's more downside as folks price a recession, but I think that um, we're probably near the bottom. And so I would be looking to uh, re-enter longs on commodities, given my structural bullishness. And this is something that's interesting. I think a lot of people struggle with uh, navigating their secular stories and tactically trading them. You know, And I don't mean just like people on Twitter, although, yes, you, but also, I mean, like Goldman Sachs. I mean, Bridgewater, I mean, big names in finance will have very elegant secular stories and then not pivot out of those views on a tactical basis. So I think this is just a normal thing. I'm not saying I'm great at it either. uh, But I think we need to be cognizant of our biases, of our long-term elegant narratives, and be nimble enough to move out of them.
0: Yeah, that's a super great point. So when you talk about China and I guess the potential upside they could have, I, I, it sort of makes me think about other countries close to them and who are influenced by them. So maybe Vietnam mm. as well. They've had a really bad performance, I guess, over the past year. Potentially influenced like that by that. So then could you get other, you know, performance from there? But I guess the challenge is that you don't want to overcomplicate the trade, which is just, no, I'm no, sure no. I think you,
1: you might want to overcomplicate the trade. You actually, yeah, you, you are correct. Um, but I would look at it in DM terms. So I like Europe. And Japan, on that one. Now, Europe, obviously, I have to be correct on the Ukraine war. Uh, so my controversial view: the war is basically over. It's got to be right. So maybe we want to put that on the sideline, put a pin in it, because there's multiple steps required for European performance. Although I think long term that is the best trade. Japan, however, is an imminent. Like, it should be, like, ready. You know, the decline in the yen tends to be good for Japanese equities. I know that's a little bit oversimplistic, and there's been some good research that suggests it's not the case anymore. But, hey, look, that decline is huge, should make Japanese exports more more cheaper. That's a good thing. The problem for Japan is that their number one export partner, China, has effectively been in a self-imposed recession. So what you have is a coiled spring. You know, Japanese currency is cheap exports have lagged because of this weird issue. Now China's putting a floor in growth in a dramatic fashion in my view. That should allow that coiled spring to burst in Japan. So I think Japanese equities ought to be really good next year. I don't really have a great track record like trading Japan uh, except the currency, I, but you know, so I'm just going to throw that one out there and then people who are smarter than me can, you know, tell me if it's right or wrong. But I but I think that Japan should be the best way to play China. Also if you're sitting as a CIO of a big uh public, you know, pension fund in Australia, Canada, US in the West and you have reputational constraints to trading China and potentially soon legal ones given what the commerce department is cooking in the US. Um it doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow China. You know, this is this is I can see a a mistake coming for a number of institutional investors around the world where they're going to say like look, I can't invest in Chinese assets due to geopolitical issues. Commerce Department rules. So I'm just not going to like pay attention to it. Oh, my God, don't do that. China is not the Soviet Union. And what I mean by that is the Soviet Union didn't move the needle on any macro stuff during the Cold War. China will move the needle. You cannot invest in Europe or commodities or Latin America or Japan without having sophistication about China. Whether you're trading Chinese assets or not, you better know what's going on in China. Because it is the second largest economy in the world, and it's very much policy-driven. In other words, you cannot just look at fancy charts and predict the future of Chinese economy. You have to have a geopolitical and political insight into it. And that's why I've spent so much time and effort building out the China team uh, and having people there who understand the framework that I've developed so that they're not just obsessed with like rumors and, and contacts.
0: Yeah, and if you think about following capital, most of the capital, let's be honest, comes from the U.S. in China. That's where most. Yeah, of Yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. And, and the way I would say it is that you know, China and the U.S. are like mom and dad. You know, like that's if you're a macro trader, like you have to understand them. China and the U.S. China's mom, U.S. is dad. Okay, and a mom and dad are going through a divorce right now. You know, um, they. I mean, they they haven't divorced yet, but like you know, dad is sleeping in a condo. You know, and so like, you know, in, in the beach house. And so uh, that's really important because uh, you have to understand monetary policy in the U.S. is particularly important for uh, for macro because the Fed is the global central bank. On China's side, it's more of the fiscal. Chinese fiscal, because it tends, uh, fiscal and credit, uh, which is fiscal for them. You know, credit impulse in China is their way of fiscally stimulating. So you have to watch China for the fiscal. You have to watch the US for for the monetary, and uh, you cannot. You you have to text both your mom and your dad at Christmas. Like you cannot just favor one.
0: Got into family advice as well. I like it <laughs> getting off the investing, but uh, yeah, Marco, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate. It. We've covered so many topics. Uh, I guess my last question is: What is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation?
1: Well, I think you know. I I always have the final message is kind of the same. It's not something that we talked about in the conversation, uh, but it's something that I would say, I said it at the top, like, you know, we all need to incorporate geopolitics now as investors. I got lucky because I failed in academia. I failed in political risk consulting. So I backed myself into finance and I happen to have all this knowledge about politics, geopolitics, you know, I got lucky. But what I would say is that we all now need to incorporate geopolitics as a tool in our toolbox as investors. We just have to. And the one thing I would say that's the most important is approach geopolitics and politics the way you do when you do technical analysis or when you pick Microsoft versus Google. What am I saying? Like, you don't cheer for Microsoft or Google. You're not, like, biased towards Microsoft or Google. You approach these issues analytically. And so you have to do the same thing with geopolitics. And what that means is that, you know, you need to kind of leave your biases at home. You know, this is this is this is not the time to be an Australian or a Greek or a Serb or a Canadian, right? Like this is a time to be an analyst, and uh, bathing yourself in indifference is the only way that you can actually trade geopolitics and politics. And most people, I would say, ninety percent of investors don't. Uh, they they have views that are based on their norms, ideology, morals, and that's fine. You can still be a human being, but be a human being when you're home. At dinner with your family, now when you're in front of your Bloomberg screen. When you're in front of the Bloomberg screen, be a robot that's analyzing geopolitics and politics.
0: Yeah, that's a great piece of you know advice, and I think you could lean that to the energy uh, companies as well. Maybe not geopolitical, but there's a you know that's going back to the voter, the left-leaning voter. They against maybe you know traditional oil, traditional energy, but they've overperformed ridiculously. Well, that's a
1: great. Years. That's a, that's actually great. Like I, you know, I go to, um, I speak to family offices who lean conservatively, you know, and I've spoken to them in places like Texas and Alabama, and I would say to them, like, green, green technology is going to be the biggest, one of the biggest investments over the next decade. And they get angry and like, climate change is not a real thing. I'm like, fine, fine. That's cool. You may think climate change is a hoax perpetrated by liberal elites. That's, that's your view. That's cool. But here's what's going to lead from trillions of dollars invested in this, there's going to be externalities that you can trade. Similarly on oil prices, you know, being long or short oil cannot be an ideological view. Like if you hold it, um, I actually, my my favorite trade for this decade is to have a barbell portfolio. Where in the privates, you invest in green tech, and in the publics, you invest in brown stuff, like fossil fuels. That should be a barbell that every family office uh, applies for the next decade. And it's very ideologically weird, right? Like,
0: yeah, it's hedging all basically all bets. (laughs) So you get that's great. Yeah, the brown would give you, I guess, probably cash flow to start with, and then from there, if you wanted to, you can reinvest that into the yeah the private into
1: the green stuff. But you know, like I, I think one interesting thing. I mean, Anthony, at the end, like it's 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 easy to be a good investor today, and I'll tell you why. Normative moral issues are starting to infect. Very large pools of capital. You know, so you have these public pension funds that are not allowed to invest in all sorts of stuff that creates a sin premium in those sectors. But then now you have conservatives fighting against ESG, forbidding like Florida from investing in ESG stuff. Soon, soon, public pools of capital. Oh, then there's China. China's now evil. So we can't invest in China anymore. But five years ago they were buddies, whatever. What I'm trying to say is like, there is so much morality and normative issues that are seeping into finance that those investors that don't have those mandates are going to be able to harvest sin premium uh, off of stocks and off of investments. I mean, like tobacco stocks are great stocks, right? Because nobody wants to hold them. The dividends are high. Similarly, there's going to be this sin premium now in everything, in China, in oil, in ESG, weirdly. You know, as conservatives don't invest in ESG, as like liberals don't invest in oil. At the end of the day, like the reason that we have fiduciary duties and responsibilities and it's supposed to be the only thing you care about is because it works. <laughs> you know, and and I think that uh, morality and normative issues in investing is is very tricky. It is very, very tricky. And it's going to create a lot of dislocation and informational opportunities for those who are nimble and who approach un- investing in a nihilist
0: Uh, Matter. As you mentioned before, try and keep it uh, quantitative, basically. Look at the numbers. Uh, I would
1: say, well, I'm terrible at math. So, (laughs) (laughs) not not too much then. (laughs) You made me feel insecure. So, what I would say is be, you know, have a framework, have a framework, have a framework and have a um, systematic approach. And that can be, certainly, can be quantitative. It can also be framework driven, uh, where you abide by a set of rules and concepts. Uh, that are about you know getting the future right effectively and not about anything else
0: yeah perfect I think that's a great message takeaway. so Marco thanks again so uh, we, we've mentioned your book which I'd really recommend people to read to I guess find out more about uh, the framework and then I think you analyze it against other you know specific examples in the past which is uh, re- really useful and uh, where else could people sort of find your work
1: so I'm on Twitter so you can just Google or Twi- Twitter Google whatever see uh, I'm old. Give me, a, give me a break yeah marco poppitch is at geo underscore popic. um and as i said Shang, shanghai macro as well is the office in shanghai so uh you can dm us uh if you're interested in research and uh we can go from there
0: awesome i'll put that in the description below so marco thanks again
1: thank you so much anthony
0: thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading and finance. See you on the next show.